Welcome to Chewing the Fat with Jeff Fisher, our special American dream segment, uh, our Saturday segment. Uh, You know how we like to talk to people who are living their American dream. That's the American dream, really, of people living their own life, what they wanted. We're talking to Blake J. Harris, and yeah, 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 I got it. He was the author of Console Wars. I got it. He was the author of The History of the Future. He got secret emails from Mark Zuckerberg. And we're, we're inside Facebook. He's Mr. Investigator. We find out he's Mr. Sherlock Holmes with the two spaces on the email sentences. I got it. Hey, Blake, how you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm loving this. I'm great. I'm great. But I know what you're leading towards. You're leading towards the fact that most importantly... Bestsellers aside, I wake up every day and I put on shorts. And that is me living See? the American dream, wearing shorts and writing and no longer trading commodities. And, and, and I'm living my dream. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. All right, no longer trading commodities. Um, when you were, uh, in an earlier interview, you mentioned uh, um, Palmer Lucky, who's in the book, uh, The History of the Future. Right. And that, I mean, that's the basis of the book. Right. And, uh, when he was 19, he decided that he was going to uh, figure out virtual reality because he wanted to play inside a game. And that meant that he's now a billionaire and he's doing whatever he wants to do, right. living his dream. Yep. Right? And the line that you said was, well, what were you doing when you were 19? <laughs> I mean, I know what I was doing at 19 and it wasn't that. Um, at 19... I mean, you're obviously best-selling author. You're 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 involved in screenplays, and you've you've written uh, stuff for Hollywood and television. And uh, you know now you're you know you're basically you're just writing books now. Is that what your plan is? For now? the most part, and I'm sure we'll get into why I'm doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Screenwriting, but wh- what I was doing at 19 was I was a freshman or soft freshman and sophomore at Georgetown in Washington D.C. At that point in my life, I knew that I wanted to be a writer, but I had okay. no idea how to make a living doing it. You know, I was writing what I thought was the great American novel at the time. I was writing short stories, but how do you make a living writing? You know, it's not a, it's, it's not a career path like lawyer or doctor and a lot of the other stuff at Georgetown, which is part of the fun of it. But, you know, and, and so for me, who, who grew up sort of, wanting that safe career my parents wanted me to like good jewish parents wanted me to be a doctor lawyer <laughs> i got news for you that ain't all just jewish parents <laughs> <laughs> okay well and like you know i'd be like oh guys they're great parents i want to be a writer they're like sure. well, how do you, what's the path and i'm like you kind of have to just keep writing and try to make connections and so at least there seemed to be more of a path trajectory to screenwriting more so because there was just film school and there was something that you could say that you're doing so i applied to a lot of film schools um, out of college. I didn't get into most of them. I didn't get into most of the writing MFA programs, though I did get into a couple, like the, the new school offered me a nice scholarship. But, but I realized that one of, I think one of the main reasons when talking to people who went to screenwriting school or creative writing MFA schools, they said that the biggest value is that you're writing every day, that it's sort of regimented. And I was already doing that. So I felt like I didn't need to go into debt to do something that I, you know, my, whether or not I was talented, I was always very good at setting aside the time and doing it. Right. And so screenwriting was what I sort of thought was my aspiration for for so many years. And and since I was not making money doing that, I got a day job trading uh, commodity futures when I was working with um, seven Brazilians. Um, The boss was this guy, great guy, Michael McDougall, one of my mentors. He was an American who had lived in Brazil, was married to a Brazilian. 
And uh, we had Brazilian wow. clients who were, you know, they actually owned the mills in Brazil, like Copper wow. like and Haizan and Petrobras. Futures commodities are, that's a tough business. I mean, I, I do actually know uh, another person, uh, aside from yourself, who broke into that. And the next thing I know, you know, he's got four computer screens in front yes. of him and he's <laughs> up at, he's up at four o'clock in the yep. morning and he's delving in and I'm like, okay. No, I'm going back yeah, to bed. Yeah, so I was doing all that. The one caveat that I think makes it a little bit less impressive is that I was a broker, so I was basically executing orders for clients. I, okay. I, I, you know, I wasn't a strategic quant genius behind the scenes, um, but I was dealing every day with four computers. I wasn't up at 4.30, but I was up at 6, and the part of the reason I liked that was because I was done at 2, and so that gave me the whole afternoon okay, time to, to write screenwriting and stuff. Okay, so uh, when you started screenwriting and you started creating that and you realized that you weren't going to make any money, at the same time, are you writing other stuff? You know, you're doing the screenwriting. Was there, did you find time to be able to say, you know, I really, I, I'm a writer. I'm just going to write. That's what I do. Um, it, know, it's, it, such a, it's, such a, it's such a disciplined thing. I mean, right. every writer that we talk to or that I talk to, uh, you know, that joins us here and we talk about their, you know, the way they knock out things. I mean, it's a just right. I mean, it's just right. every day, every day, every day. So, so fortunately, I was disciplined enough that I was getting, I was writing every day. And obviously, you know, some part of the back of my mind was saying, oh, the reason you're not successful is because you still have this day job because you're, you're tired or because you're not writing 20 hours a day instead and there's, of eight. And there's a number of people that would tell you that you're right on that. Right. And, and, and I always thought I would quit my day job if, if, I, if there was a reason to do so other than just this devil's advocate voice. Like if someone offered me a great opportunity, even for no money, I would take it. Um, but what, I, what my original plan was out of college, I got this job. I started the week after college. Um, working at, it was then called FEMAT brokerage. It's now called, it was then called New Edge. I don't know what it's called now, but I was, uh, my, my grandfather, who was one of the biggest role models and people I loved most in my life, he passed away the week before I graduated. Oh. And so, yeah, and so that was tough, but, but the, the silver lining, if you were to call it that, was that my grandma was, was, you know, no longer had a roommate and I was wanting to move to New York. So I lived with my grandma for a year and that was awesome. Um, especially because I'm sort of an introvert recluse and she just like kind of let me have my space and she was happy to watch TV and I was happy to watch TV and we'd maybe pass That's each other Blake's. at one in the morning. Yeah. So that was awesome. That's great. And, and I saved money. You know, I, I was living in New York in a very nice place and paid no money for that for a year. And I saved up all this money that was going that I was going to use to go to film school. I could at least thought that was a better investment than a creative writing MFA. And I had this money you know, I'd saved up like $30,000 over the course of a year because I really just saved everything. Right. Um, and then wow, during you, that time... You carpetbagger. <laughs> just living off your grandma. I know. That, I, was, I was super lucky. And again, if you're looking for a good roommate, Mimi Fazari might be the perfect roommate for you. Um, and so during that time, I was, uh, you know, writing what I thought was the Great American Novel, Part 7 or whatever. And I also partnered up with a high school friend of mine, Jonah Toulis, um, and we started writing a screenplay about competitive rock, paper, scissors. Um, and, and part of this was inspired because him and I Sorry. knew each other because we were on a slow pitch softball team with our fathers in, in Chappaqua, New York, where we grew up and where the Clinton family now lives. And him and I were the like young guns, 19, 20 years old on this team Show of 45-year-old yeah. professionals. And it was so funny because it, it, Chappaqua is a wealthy town. So you had, you had the doctors, the lawyers, the investment bankers. And these guys, when we played slow pitch softball, they'd act like kids. They would act so unprofessional, take it so seriously. And we loved that. And we wanted I, to find a way to convey that. And we thought, 
rock, paper, scissors is a silly sport, but people take it seriously. Yeah. I mean, and, and we wrote the script for like a mockumentary style movie, you know, sort of inspired by The Office and Arrested Development and Christopher Guest movies. And origin, and then Jonah, who's, who's a filmmaker, said, we should make this. And I thought, that's cool, but, you know, I ha- I'm planning to go to film school. And he said, no, no, no you know, it'll only, we'll put in a couple thousand dollars each. And I was like, okay. Well, a couple thousand dollars each turned into $150,000 over the course of a few years, which is anyone who's made an investment in anything probably knows that money pit feeling where, you know, at first it's like, well, do we want a a B plus actor or an A plus actor? Okay, we'll pay the extra $4,000. Do we want this or that? We'll pay, you know, it adds up. And then at some point you've put in so much, it feels like a sunk cost and you're putting in more money. Um, And so that was what I did instead of film school. Uh, you know, in retrospect, I don't know which was the better option. Obviously, this worked out well for me, but it, but right. it wasn't like that experience directly led to anything. I learned a lot of lessons from it, but 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 it wasn't. You know, we, are we yeah. able to see the rock paper scissors anywhere? Yeah, it's called the flying I mean, scissors. I'm, I feel bad that I have not seen this. No, no, well, you like everybody else in the world have not seen this. No, it's called the flying scissors, and and and, and I encourage you if you have if this sounds interesting to you at all to check it out. You know, I think, and that kind of gets to my realization of what did help it become somewhat successful was, um, you know, it's not the Godfather, obviously, you know, it's a silly movie. And so for a while, because we got rejected from every film festival we applied to, I was sort of embarrassed by it, thought I was so stupid to put all my money into this. And then I realized, you know, after, uh, after enough time, I was able to step away from the baggage and just watch it and say, this is a funny movie. It's not the greatest movie ever. It's not as funny as Arrested Development, but this is a good movie. I'm, I'm proud of it. Um, and, nice. and, and you know who else I think would like it would be the college version of me or, or college kids. And so Jonah and I put together a trailer. And when I was at Georgetown, they, this was back when movies came out on DVD. And so in between the theatrical release of a movie and the DVD release, Georgetown would have like a weekend where they would show like Ocean's Eleven, you know, right, okay. in between sure. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So I contacted that committee at Georgetown and said, hey, you know, I just graduated from there. I made this movie. Here's a trailer do you think that you would ever show it? And they were like, oh yeah, this is great. And then, yeah, and I was like, all right, well, I don't have to just have an in to, to make this pitch. And so I really spent like yeah. three weeks researching the name. Every university. Yeah, <laughs> I put together a list of 500 universities and I nice. genuinely felt like a stalker because I was looking up like 19-year-old <laughs> kids. It was like, what's, what's the name of the committee that chooses the movies? Okay, it's this person, you know, Joe Millie, Johnson. Millie How, from Kansas City. <laughs> yeah, and I especially felt bad when it was like, you know, Laura from Kansas yeah, City, and yeah. I'm like trying to find out this 18-year-old's email address, and I'm like, it's not really for funny. romantic purposes. Um, and, and, and that was such a, in retrospect, that was such a life-changing experience for me because I think that like a lot of people, especially people who grew up in a well-to-do area, like I just wasn't used to hearing no, and it made, and I was uncomfortable with it. But, you know, as you know, from booking guests or whatever, like you at some point have to just get over it. And and so I work in radio. Yeah. (laughs) I've been told no. So I needed to learn that lesson. And so I reached out to 500 places and, you know, whatever, 460 of them said no, but 40 of them said yes. And I realized, oh my God, why, who cares about no? I just got 40 yeses and, and that would end up coming in really useful. Well, first of all, this led to a college tour of the movie, and then we ended up distributing it that's with great. Warner Digital, and it wasn't like a big payday or anything, and that's why you still- But you got some fight. You got some back on it. Right. You know, you exactly. Back. Like, it was the best fate you could ask for, and it was all salvaged because Jonah and I stopped being scared about, you know, like, I even we got into one festival, I think it was a Palm Beach festival, and, and I, I was very excited because I thought, wow, at least we got into one, and then Jonah said, no, but if we go to one, it'll look like we got rejected from all the others, and we were just so scared of perception that we were like, yeah, let's not do it. Um, oh. So 
that was a lesson in stupidity also. But Jonah and I have, you know, have been through all these downs together. And now here we are 10 years or 15 years later, and we're directing the documentary component of console wars. And so, you know, we, we've, we've learned some lessons and, and in terms of console wars, um, for me, like that was a story that I just was curious about and I wanted to reach. So I, you know, at first I went to a Barnes and Noble on 86th street in Manhattan, which is one of the biggest Barnes and Nobles. Yeah, and right I was there. looking for books on video game history. I thought there'd be a video game history section next to the film history and the music history section, but no. And I wow. thought, well, that's weird. I, I, I didn't know too much about gaming, but it seemed like an industry in entertainment that was as big as those other two. And I asked the woman at the information desk, where's your books on video games? And she said, she, she actually laughed at me because I asked, I asked for the video game history section and she laughed at me and I was like, okay, well, can I just get one of the books on the history of video games, business of video games? Um, and they didn't have a single thing in the entire wow. store. And I thought that was just so odd. And you know, in the movie version of the story, that's when I'll go, aha, I'm going to fill this demand. Yeah. That wasn't what happened, but I just thought that was weird. So pretty close though. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. And over time, that was what happened. And, and just, I, I ended up reaching out to people and, and the, the hearing no was, I was fine with hearing no. You know, I reached out to a hundred or so people on LinkedIn who I saw were at Sega and Nintendo at that time. I heard back from, I think like 12% of them. That was great. That was 12% more than yeah. no, than, than zero. Um, and that's really what, what got me started on, on this career. And at the time I still was trading commodities, but, but I was curious and I followed that. That's interesting. So, all right. So now you, uh, you, you started that and obviously the great, you know, success that you had with that. And that was a, you know, a wise move. And at some point with console wars, you stopped the commodity sales. You finally said enough is enough. Yes. So what happened was during all of this time, going back to flying scissors, while we were filming flying scissors, um, I met my now wife and, and person and Katie, she, she's, okay greatest person in my life, my which, wife, my best friend. Which 18-year-old was she that answered the email? <laughs> well, sadly, she was not that much older than 18 because I was not that much older than 18. You know, she was 24. I was 24. She she was a, a temp at the commodities place where I was working. And, um, you know, I moved in with her three weeks after we started dating. We always knew we were going to be together. It was just a matter of did we believe in marriage and all that. And we eventually got married. Um, Ooh. But, but, but so anyway, flash forward, you know, my family is sort of more traditional, always thought, well, you're living with this girl, you should get yeah, married. And, um, and, and I remember in December of 20, December of 2011, my family was having a Hanukkah party. And, and so my grandma was there, roommate grandma, my cousins, Katie, everyone. And, and I had just found out, I'd just gotten some great news from my manager that Seth Rogen wanted to meet with me to talk about potentially nice. adapting this book that I hadn't even written yet. It was just a book proposal into a movie or producing my documentary with Jonah. And so I thought this was the greatest news of all. And, no. and because I'm kind of a jerk, I gathered, I, you know, I tapped the glass, I gathered everyone around at this Hanukkah party and I said, you know, everyone, I have some incredible news. And I put my arm around Katie and I said, after, you know, after seven years of dating, I have some great news to announce that I'm going to LA on January 6th and meeting with Seth Rogen. And my grandma was like, wait, you're not getting engaged. What's happening here? So that was, uh, I, Katie didn't know that I was making this joke, so she wasn't the happiest about uh, that's that. That's really funny. But, but fortunately, I was able to make up for that error because um, in, you know, Seth Rogen, I met with him in January. Him and Evan um, immediately called back our reps and said they wanted to produce the movie. Yeah, he eventually great. wrote the forward to the book. They were producing this documentary that, Joan and I are directing. And then six months later, Scott Rudin, who had adapted some of my favorite books, like The Accidental Billionaires and Moneyball into great movies, um, came on board and they brought it to Sony. They sold it. To, we sold it to Sony. Then we sold the book to HarperCollins. And 
finally you are living large, my friend. So I'm about to live large, and I finally I tell my boss that I'm that I'm going to be leaving, and they, and they were obviously you know they were sad to have me leave, but they were always so supportive. They knew I wanted to write, and that was good because it could have gone another way. Right. Um, and and so on my the my last day of day job, my last day of working at 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 FEMAT or New Edge was my 30th birthday, December 14th, um, 2012. And, uh, and so I said goodbye. And because I was not going to be um, coming back to the city anytime soon, I was now going to be working from home. And I had a trip. Um, I had a, actually had a trip prepared to go to San Francisco to celebrate with Tom Kalinske, the main character of the book, who had been the CEO of Sega from 1990-96. And I was planning to propose there to, to Katie. And I actually, so I, I had picked out a ring with my father and um, and I thought, oh, go. and I was like, well, okay, I'm in the city. I should try to see if it's ready today um, and pick it up because I don't want to come back in the city. So I picked up this ring and then I went home and, and there was everyone yelled surprise. And, and Katie had, uh, you know, organized a surprise party for my 30th birthday. I was genuinely surprised. I, it, it was amazing. And then my uncle, Uncle Brad, he said, um, he said, how does it feel to be the center of attention? And I said, I was like, honestly, I don't like being the center of attention. He said, well, too bad, buddy. It's your birthday. And I said, well, I think I have an idea how to not be center of attention. And I got down on one knee, and I proposed to Katie. And she said yes. And then five years later, we actually got married. <laughs> we're pretty slow with that whole thing. But, but you know, that, all of that really was just me living the dream, finally yeah. being a professional writer. I was always, you know, as long as I had Katie in my life, I was always going to be living some version of the dream. But, but to actually be able to support us, and then also be with someone who she supported me through a lot of writing this new book because I turned it in two years late. I was not making money for two years and, and had her supporting me. My God, um, man, you're living off your grandmother and you're living yeah. off your girlfriend. <laughs> Basically, I love you now. If you take away one, if you have one takeaway from this conversation, it's that Blake J. Harris is a leech, <laughs> that he lives off his grandma and he lives off of his girlfriend. But no, it's because I've been fortunate to have these wonderful people Absolutely. in my life. And, and also they've been supportive. You know, they didn't, they took my writing seriously. They, they didn't think of it was just a hobby. My grandma especially was always very supportive. So now uh, the uh, latest book, uh, The History of the Future, uh, it took how many years? So I, I signed the contract with HarperCollins in July of 2015. With an idea. Yeah, with an idea. Um, I wanted to write about virtual reality. I like writing narrative nonfiction books. I, speaking of grandma, I, my goal is always to write a book that my grandma can appreciate. And she doesn't know the first thing about tech. So to me, it's how can I make a good human story out of this, like the social okay. network sure. or like Moneyball. And so I, I wanted to write about Oculus and about Palmer and about his CEO, Brendan Reed. cool story. And you know, my only, the only reason I didn't fully commit to that was because I need to tell the kinds of stories I want in a way that my grandma could enjoy. I need the access. So I couldn't fully tell my publisher I had that. I could do that because I didn't have the access. Um, I ended up getting that access um, in in February of, of 2016, um, and so originally the book was due to my publisher in September of 2016. So they had given me like 14 months to write the book, which was going to be a little tight, but but I sort of imagined I can get it done by like December, you know. And, and meanwhile, September of 2016, the month when it was due to my publisher, was also the same month. It was actually four days before the deadline that the articles came out calling Palmer Lucky the right. worst person in Silicon Valley because he was supporting Trump and allegedly was running this troll organization, which wasn't true. So the tower was starting to fall. Right. Yeah. And so I, uh, you know, I ended up turning the book in in September of 2018. So two years later, and you know the way most book contracts work, or you know, basically I was paid some money up front and then I would be paid the rest when the book was done. So I basically 
delayed getting paid for two years because I thought that the story was invest worth investigating. And fortunately, I had to support yeah. my wife and the publisher too. So, at what point when you're when you're in this, uh, almost like uh, the other story, you know, at some make when you made your movie, you know, at some point you've invested so much time that I'm not getting out of this, right? right. I mean, there's no, I'm, I'm not giving up. I'm not stopping. I'm not letting this. I'm not letting this hit this wall and just okay. Well, that's good enough, right? Because I've invested this time and energy. I got to go through. The, I got to get to the other side. Yeah. And and at and at what point do you think do you think to yourself and you tell the people who are you know around you, I got to keep going. I can't stop this. You know, I just I I, I, I it fascinates me because so yeah. many people give up at that time. You know, no, the you're wall totally is right. Or you know, even if I didn't give up, I could have said, okay, I've, I haven't made money for a year. I need to take other jobs, and I'll keep doing this on the side. And, and I think that for me, one of the biggest reasons I didn't do that, like I don't know if there was an actual point. Um, it was more of like a gradual thing. But, but, but it kind of comes back to, I, I've been asked um, over the years by my reps or, or by fans, you know, do I have any, will I be writing any fiction or screenplays again? And, and you know, I'm a, I'm a storyteller at heart. And so I, you know, I'm open to any good idea. But, but it really does feel like I, I don't know that I could write fiction because nonfiction is not only usually stranger than fiction, but you're dealing with real people. And so yeah. for me to delay or to not get to the other side, I knew Palmer Lucky. I, that would be like an insult to him to, to not tell this story, um, insult to all those people involved. And so I felt the responsibility to them to do it. Um, and so I don't know that there was ever a point where I really questioned not doing it and not doing it the right way. I kind of didn't really care what happened to me. I, I wanted to get this story right at any cost. Um, and, you know, and, and and fortunately, like I said, I had my wife there to support me. Um, and then I also, in addition, I think that's just, you know, every artist would like to believe that they would say that. Um, right. and, 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 but, and then part of what actually helped me maybe turn the corner was that I knew that this story was really important. You know, Council Wars was a really fun story and, was, and it was like a behind the scenes look at so many people's childhoods. But it didn't involve the CEO of one of the most powerful companies in the world no, illegally kidding. coercing an employee to lie about their politics. And so that is, you know, something that's actually newsworthy. And that made for yeah, an interesting yeah. change, too, in addition to the whole political element. You know, th there, there's a current events aspect to this book. And, and that because I'm always trying to write books that my grandma would enjoy or I always try to book, write books that I think 10 years from now people will still enjoy. I also wanted to balance that with. There's a lot of stuff that I've uncovered that is newsworthy, um, but I didn't want the book to live just on the fact that it was newsworthy because it's a great story, a great entrepreneurial story. Um, and I, but but you know, so so that balancing act was tough. Um, and 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 actually, um, at one point, my publisher did cancel the book, and I was still committed to doing it. So, wow, um, yeah, uh, I, I I will differentiate between Enough publisher. Already. <laughs> no, I'll, yeah, I'll differentiate between <laughs> publisher and editor because you know the publisher is the person who pays you the money and it you know, sort of is this abstract support system and then your editor is the person that you're actually dealing with and and I you'll know why I'm making this distinction because my editor at the time um, I she had me come in in uh, in, in mid 2017 we we're talking about the book and I'd been working on it for two years at that point and she said who's the hero of this book and I was kind of like we've had this conversation a times. I said it, it's Palmer it's oculus it's the underdog story and she said but Palmer's a Trump supporter. Nobody's going to buy a book about. Nobody's going to buy a tech book about a Trump supporter. And I just could not believe that because, wow. as you know, I'm not a Trump supporter. But 
Who cares, first of all? Right. Second of all, if you really do care, then then market it like he's a villain for being a Trump supporter. I mean, I don't think I would have let that happen, but right. you know, th- there's, a, there, there's a capitalistic reason why you can actually see this as an advantage. Sure. And I thought that was shocking um, that she said that. I was also really glad that I had been recording all my conversations at that point um, so that, wow. <laughs> you know, I, I just was like, I wanted to confirm that I really heard that right, and I did. And then a couple months later, um, they canceled the book. I should say, reiterate that I was very late with this book. So, so I don't, right. I don't think their reason was, oh, this is a Trump supporter. Let's cancel. That wasn't what happened here. It was that was probably one component of them not believing in the book. Right. And I was already very late. But in uh, on December fifteenth, twenty seventeen, they canceled the book, or they said they were canceling the book, and that was devastating. But at the same time, I knew that I had a valuable, important story here. Like I knew the next six months were now going to be messy because I'd have to pay back that advance, find a new publisher, figure out how to survive, figure out how to tell my wife that this thing that I was kept saying was I was almost done with. You need to find another woman. <laughs> maybe find another <laughs> wife to help support me. Um, maybe find another grandma, and then uh, you know. And then, unfortunately, very sadly, in the uh, December, I think, 29th, uh, my, my wife's mother um, passed away, you know, suddenly oh. passed away. It was That's totally sad. unexpected. Um, and so, and I do remember thinking that her mom lived in St. Louis. That's where all her family's from. And I remember thinking, like, well, the one good thing here is that I no longer am on a deadline. Like, you know, they, they've canceled the book. I can just go with my wife to St. Louis, and whether it takes a day, two months, whatever, whatever right. I can just be there and be a good husband. And, and, and I did that. But I, but one week after we were out there, it was the, you know the end of winter break, and my agent called me in St. Louis, and he said, "Hey, you know your editor wants to know what's the status of the book." And I said, "Well, the status is that she canceled it." Canceled. What, it. what do you What do you mean? And he's like, "Ah, oh, yeah, I think that she brought it to the higher ups at HarperCollins, and they didn't they didn't take the cancellation." But it reminded me so much of I'm you know Seinfeld is what probably made me want to become a writer. I love Seinfeld, and it reminded yeah. me of George. Costanza quitting on a Friday, then just coming back in on Monday like nothing there, happened. Like, nothing I was like, happened. like <laughs> guys, my mother-in-law just passed away. I'm in St. Louis. What's the status of the book? Um, but you know, like I said, I want to differentiate between my terrible editor and my wonderful publisher, HarperCollins. They've believed in the book. They've been super supportive of the book, even with the controversial <laughs> political aspects. Um, and then I got back to work, and uh, and yeah. So I don't know that there was ever a point where I seriously thought about not doing it because. These are real people. The story needed to get out there. And I'm also just an obsessive sort of person. So I've been going down this rabbit hole for a few years. And like you said, there's sort of like a sunk, you know, like I've gone so far yeah, down. I'm not, I'm not and, and, and the other interesting aspect of this too is that, like I mentioned earlier, I, for me to do the kind of writing I want, I need to have good access. And so in February of 2016, Facebook and Oculus gave me what was essentially unlimited and unprecedented access to their employees. And so, so during all this terrible stuff that happened with Palmer, I was in touch with him every day. There were certain things he was not allowed to talk to me about, but you know, just hearing the state of mind of someone who's going through yeah. you know, one of this this traumatic experience, this terrible experience, um, and then also the fact that because I had this access, um, Facebook could never really know where the information came from because I, my sources were not one or two people; it was right. dozens of people. Everyone, yeah. it was everyone, and so. I also, you realize I was in this unique position where after all these NDAs were signed, I was probably the only person who could ever legally tell this story. So that was a, a good burden to have. And, yeah. and that was part to, part of what also, you know, propelled me forward and, and, and made me feel like I was doing something important. Well, the book, uh, The History of the Future is tremendous and, and Thank uh, you. you know, it's well worth the read. All right. So what now? 
Where are we at? Are you working? Have you decided what's next? Are you working on what's next? Or are you just getting up every day going, eh, I'll write something? <laughs> um, yeah, the history of the future, too. No, um, yeah. <laughs> Sequels I mean, work. No, I, I think that as I've talked about with, with Glenn and, and probably we even talked about a little bit last time I was on, you know, the media reaction to this book is about what you'd expect, which is either unbelievable criticism or more so just crickets. And I say that I say that too many times in today's world, unbelievable, because it really, it really is becoming not unbelievable anymore. Right, and that's sad. Exactly, like that's why I said we can expect it. I, I say also like it's insane, but it's not insane because you right. know. Right. So, so just to recap, I wrote. Console Wars, it's the all-time best-selling video game book. And as we know from my experience at Barnes & Noble, there's not that many video game books. So <laughs> right. don't, don't give me too much praise. But, but you know, it sold over 100,000 copies. Everyone, seemingly everyone in the tech and, journalism, sure. tech and gaming journalism world loved the book. Um, got got the lots of coverage. Right. I was named All to best yep. people in gaming lists. Um, flash forward five years later, it's, the book's now been out for two and a half months. There still hasn't been a single review on any gaming site. There's no mention of the book on any site. Um, I, you know, I think we, I have, I feel confident in knowing why that's the case, but I'm not in these people's hearts and minds. But when it, when it's that many people and there's not a single one, that's weird. Yeah, um, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so I, I was also sort of expecting that to be the case, sadly. Um, and so mm. I, I wanted to make I mean, it sure. it started with your editor before it was even right. done. Yeah. And I knew, you know, my editor is an intelligent woman. And if an intelligent woman can think so unintelligently about this subject matter, that that just made me believe, okay, that's probably what I have to expect right. from a lot of other people. And um, so I wanted to make sure that I had another book sort of set up and planned where I wasn't going to be reliant on the tech media or much of the media and where I also knew that I would have that access and wasn't going to be based on a tech organization giving it to me. So the next book I'm going to be writing is about the first three Americans to open a hotel in Tahiti back in the 1960s. So you're already on it. I'm already on it. I've actually been interviewing one of the guys for the past few years. And and that's, you know, how it works. I think a lot of one. Okay. Well this book. So, I mean, you're, if you're already on it, you're already a a year in. Yeah. All right. It's okay. I mean, so uh, you've already, (laughs) you've already got time spent. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the way that this was brought to me was, you know, initially after interviewing over, you know, two, after doing hundreds of interviews for both books, my manager said, hey, Blake, how would you feel about, um, you know, interviewing only a few people and going to Tahiti to write this thing? And I was like, I'd be very interested in doing that. Um, <laughs> oh, no, twist my arm. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, the first two books were stories that I found on my own that I was personally interested in. The Tahiti story was one that was actually brought to me by my manager, Julian Rosenberg, and this producer, Jim Croak. And their intention or their interest was potentially doing a TV series. And I think that there was going to be something along those nice. lines. And, and their interest was more of like the debauchery, the fact that these people had had 18 different kids by 10 different women and were living the lifestyle. Wait, you call that debauchery? Is that the word you use? What are you <laughs> yeah. talking about? You know, um, rom- nice romances. You know, basically you. that that's stuff. And, and that stuff I think is You can't help what you're cool, in love but that's, like. I'm not As a writer, I'm not interested in that. I'm super interested in three Americans quitting their job and going to Tahiti in 1960 at a time when you couldn't even get to 19, to get, get to Tahiti. Right. And when Tahiti didn't want you there, uh, you know, the French government didn't want outsiders there. And so how they built this hotel empire. And so amazing. You know, that, that's that, that's fascinating. What, yeah, I love I mean, that's, the what, that's, the, that's almost the Cuba story, right? With the mafia trying to yeah. go into Cuba. They're, yeah, now it's Haiti. Exactly. You know, they're doing the same thing in Tahiti. Yeah. So no mafiosos, but right. pretty interesting guys. And, and I just love entrepreneurial stories. I find them inspiring and they also help me because, you know, as a writer, you're 
an entrepreneur in, in some way, you have to sell the books, you have to navigate yeah. these territories. And so that that's what I'll be working on. And also because the history of the future um, was a book that took place like in real time and it's such a modern yeah. story, I'm still getting um, new information that I want to include in the second edition of the book. So I'm still, I still, I don't nice. really feel like I'm done with this book um, per se, which is a good, History good of problem. the Future Squared coming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Future Squared, yeah. <laughs> All right, Blake J. Harris, I know you, uh, you know, we'll get you out of here. We've been yapping for a while. I really appreciate it. And I, I love that, you know, look, you're living your American dream, right? That we started off with that way. Um, it's a it's a great thing when you're able to do that, and you even uh, you even you know talked a little bit about that when uh, you were able to go with your wife to her mother's death, and you're like, I'm just going to spend the time. Right. I'm going to do this, and uh, it's so fortunate when you're able to do that, no yeah. matter who you are. And completely, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. We're, I mean, working for yourself, or or at least working with people that you trust. That was always the good thing about working at the commodity place. It was not what I wanted to be doing. I didn't want to see look, be looking at four screens at six thirty in the morning. But I was working with people who respected me and who I respected, and had a good relationship. And the one thing I want to say is that um, I mentioned that we had Seth Rogen and Scott Rudin on board for this book before it was even written or for the movie version of the book. And so we went out to publishers in November of 2012. And at that point, Seth Rogen was involved. Scott Rudin was involved. There's going to be a movie, a documentary. They're writing the forward. And still 22 of the 25 publishers passed on the book because they said video game books don't sell. Which I thought, was, well, there haven't what? been video game books, as we know, there's, there's from Barnes & Noble. the bookstore. Um, and I just thought that was crazy, because even if you believed that, and even if you believed I was a terrible writer, having Seth Rogen's name on this, like you'd think that there was something marketable there. Yeah. Um, and so I hope, I, I feel confident that the success of Console Wars has helped make it a little bit easier on the next person writing a video game book. And I just wanted to mention, in terms of other people and their American dream, if you're out there and you're listening and you're looking to write a book about tech or about gaming, because of my experience, because I didn't really have someone to talk to, I always make myself available. So you can find me on Twitter or on my website, and, and I'll almost definitely make the time to at least see if I could help you in any way or, or try to pass along what I've, what I've learned, because I think that it's really important that those of us who have found success in this help other people, especially if they have good ideas. That's, that's great, and it's all under Blake J. Harris? Uh, yeah, it's uh, BlakeJHarris.com and BlakeJHarrisNYC on Twitter. But yeah, if you Google me, you'll find me. And, okay. and um, we'll, we'll put the links up. We'll yeah, have all yeah. the links up. Uh, with, and thanks with for having me on. It's Absolutely. Been great. Uh, I really appreciate your time. And uh, it was nice to finally meet you in person. Thank Blake you. Blake J. Harris, thank you. While you're uh, searching for Blake on uh, Twitter and Facebook and his uh, website, you can uh, subscribe to Chewing the Fat with uh, yours truly, Jeff Fisher. And you can follow me you know, on Twitter at JeffyJFR, Facebook and Instagram, Jeff Fisher Radio. But for sure, subscribe to Chewing the Fat with Jeff Fisher. Yeah, that's right. You want to be alerted when the daily Chewing the Fats come out and the Saturday American Dream segments come out. I know. I know what you're thinking. You're welcome. 